Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. For Bob and Rosemary, <laughs> um, thinking about you know the, the, the Franciscans took all took over the Jesuit missions in Baja California, etc. Um, what would you say are the if there are any major differences between say Jesuit missionary approach in in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries and a Franciscan missionary approach? If there were any worth mentioning. That's a really broad, uh, uh, broad question, but I think that there there are a couple of um, of differences. Some of them some of them really rely on on geography. The Jesuits were actually the last of the major orders to become involved in, in New Spain. They didn't arrive until the 1570s or 1580s, and basically because of their late arrival, what happens is that they are assigned more peripheral uh, locations. So the Jesuits are not, for example, in central Mexico as missionaries. Uh, they're generally on the northern frontier, you know, in places like Tarahumara, Chihuahua, Durango, um, Sonora, Sinaloa. And that, then as now, that was pretty much of a desert location. You know? So you, you didn't get the opportunity, as was Baja California, you didn't get the opportunity to congregate the people uh, and let them, you know, and, and kind of, um, settle them around the mission and, and teach them to uh, adopt a more sedentary lifestyle. So in a number of the Jesuit missions, the, um, um, the, the, the native peoples would only come into the, the, to the central mission intermittently for mass or the sacraments, but they generally did not, they, they often enough did not live around those missions. So I think that, that, that that's one of the reasons why um, you know, after, after the first uh, flush of Franciscan writings in the 16th century that, uh, that James mentioned, um, Sagun and Motolini and people like that, you don't get a lot of you know, anthropological um, literature from the Franciscans, but you do get a good, a good amount from the Jesuits, Perez de Ribas and people like that. And I think that's because the way that the Jesuit missions were organized, the Jesuits had a, a, a better entree into the, the people living in their more traditional places. You know, so when the priest would go out to the native villages, the native villages wasn't three steps you know, on the other side of the church like they were in, in, in California, but they were way out there. And so when the Jesuits would visit the, the native, um, the native um, rancherias or, or traditional groups, they would have a chance to see people living in many ways the, the way that they had lived for, for quite a long time. And so you do get you know, in the Jesuit writings of the, um, of the 1600s, 
and, and early 1700s, you do get more of what we might call ethnographic or, or anthropological literature than you do get uh, among, the, among the Franciscans, which is kind of, of interesting. And I think that, that relates more to the geography than to anything else. I had a question um, for Bob and Rosemary, too. Um, in relation of the, the missionaries to the, uh, the natives, particularly the different tribes, we didn't really talk about the, the differences of the tribes um, within Alta California. And did the, uh, the missionaries ever play a role kind of in between the tribes on a political level? Did they, would they side? Yeah, mediation yeah. between them or, um, you know, Sarah has this, uh, reputation for being a great administrator and uh, going between you know, the Spanish and uh, the Spanish government and the different native tribes. But what about in between the different tribes? The tribes themselves, I didn't see anything. About Not in the early period, but what happens in the, in, in California as the as the the mission system develops is that because of the because of the indigenous death rate. Um, people were, were, were brought into the missions from farther and farther away. And so you get, at, at some of the coastal missions, you get a good number of, um, of inter-ethnic um, population. The population will come from different kinds of, of, of places. And in that sense, the missionary was kind of the person who had to mediate among all of these cultural differences. And so there, there are certain instances in the 18-teens and 1820s where the missionaries report that they, that they have to kind of treat one group one way and another group the other way and, and try to bring the two groups together with, yeah. around various sacramental activities. Uh, the major um, ethnographic stuff that you get from the Franciscans in the 18 teens was in, in 1812, I believe it was, the government sent out a big questionnaire to all of the missions. And it was really, it's the same questions were directed to all of the missions and, and the missionaries had to, had to respond to them. And they were basically done by 1814. And when you put those responses together, you get a really nice sense of what the differences among some of the mission uh, missions were and, and what some of the similarities were. The, the, they're called the interrogator, inter interrogatorio. Yeah, as she said. Um, <laughs> And, and they're really, really uh, very, very important. And you see in some of these that they're talking about ways in which they are trying to negotiate differences among the various groups in the tribe. I have a question. Do you, do you have a question for any of them? No. I have a question for uh, both for uh, for James and for and for, and for Damien. Uh, first, uh, for uh, for Damien, I talked a little bit about with him after the um, after the after his talk. Uh, Sarah was constantly writing back and forth to the Colegio de San Fernando in Mexico City, which was the Franciscan missionary headquarters. Now, in the 1830s, and, and as, as Damien indicated, most of the missionaries at San Fernando were Spaniards. So after the achievement of Mexican independence, they weren't the most welcome group in, uh, in Mexico. Uh, so the missionaries who come uh, in 1833 and, and basically administer secularization have to accommodate themselves to secularization are from Zacatecas. And a lot of them were, I gather, Mexicans themselves, you know, like the, the Real brothers. Uh, my, my sense is, my question is, how 
I, I know that Sarah and, and the people who followed him were very closely connected with their missionary headquarters, but how closely were the, the, the Zacatecan missionaries connected to, to their missionary headquarters? And, and in this kind of almost post-mission era, what did the Colegio in Zacatecas think of the mission enterprise? Were they just kind of holding on, or were they trying to adapt to new situations, or how were they reacting to all of this? That's a good question, right? You know, when we talked after the, my talk, I think a lot of the, from what I can gather, a lot of the communication between the Colegio and Zacatecas was with the, um, the priests who were appointed to oversee the missionaries there. So uh, Father Gonzalez Rubio, at, at a certain point Garcia Diego, who was their superior but then became bishop. I think, and uh, Father Ansar, who was at San Juan Bautista, who at a certain point was the prefect for the Zacatecan Franciscans in Northern California, they had communication back and forth with the college in Zacatecas. Uh, I don't think the individual padres necessarily did, though I know, for example, Father Antonio Real, when he went back uh, to Zacatecas, he was made novice master. So. Okay, um, really. Yeah, he was actually made novice master. So, um, but I don't. I think most of the communication was probably on an official level. I don't know that there was a lot of um, correspondence with the individual priests. And then, in, in terms of what they thought of the the missionary endeavor, uh, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Uh, you know, the Mexican Franciscans, uh, the ones that came down to California, were definitely. Um, it, was, it was much clearer that they were loyal subjects of Mexico. And you see that in their writings. They make it clear that you know, they very much are loyal to the Mexican Republic, whereas, as you know, a lot of the California, the Spanish Padres waited a long time to, or never, swore allegiance to Mexico. Uh, and so there was that suspicion as well. But the Mexican Padres, they, they're born there, and so they, many of them, though, they felt that Spain had sort of betrayed the ideals of Catholicism and, um, had, and so for that reason they were much more in favor of, of independence, right? It wasn't necessarily because they were anti-Spanish. Uh, so I'm not sure, though, in 1861 the college in Zacatecas is closed down, right? It's, it's, um, it's closed down under, I think, uh, you know, Benito Juarez is... Uh, um, taking over of ecclesiastical assets in Mexico. So, you know, they, they lasted another, only about 20 years after the whole endeavor. So that's, that's something that, I, that I'd like to look into yeah. to understand better. Yeah, and, and the, the question I had for James, and what, what struck me in, as, as Rosemary and I were listening to his, uh, his talk, we were kind of nudging each other and saying, well, this is so, so consistent with, with what we take to be the missionary strategy of, um, of Sarah, this kind of, if not identifying with the culture, at least you know, being respectful of the culture and, and, and knowing that the process is going to be a much more a gradual process. You know, Sarah didn't have the idea that what was anything like St. Paul on the road to Damascus was going to happen in, in California. Uh, so my, my question is, uh, how do the how do the Franciscans deal with so there are a number of them go to North Africa and to the Middle East, and they generally um, do not 
engage in large-scale conversions. Mm -hmm. So how do they deal with that? Is that just a, a, a sign that, that, that God isn't ready for this? Or what, what, what does failure or, or the lack of, of, of success mean in other areas of the world? In New Spain, there were major you know, conversions. But in other areas of the world, there really weren't. And how, how do they, what does that mean for the Franciscans? Yeah, well, if you look at uh, St. Francis of Assisi, for example, it means you keep trying, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, so he is foiled several times attempting to, uh, uh, attempting to go and, uh, and evangelize and preach to the Muslims in, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula and, and then in uh, North Africa um, until he finally is able to, uh, able to go during the Fifth Crusade. And he also goes to the Holy Land, right? Um, so I, I don't get the sense that it, that it means failure for them, right? Uh, it means that they are, this is part of living out uh, their particular, particular spirituality, um, living out this, making themselves kind of available, this, uh, this apostolic life. Uh, and, but as far as some of the other ones, right, like I mentioned, Giles of Assisi does have some success, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Specifically in the Holy Land, where you do see communities, right, forming, um, enough so that you have to have a provincial minister that's sent. So um, I don't get the sense that they they see it as failure. That it's, that it's not so they're not so concerned about numbers, but it's it's the process. It's the way in which they live their life uh, that is is more important to them. Kind of like yeah. a continuous challenge. Yeah, just well, to keep pressing forward. Mm -hmm, yeah, a continuous conversion. A con uh, continuously making yourself available right to the to the Holy Spirit. Good. Well, um, I had a, a question that I wanted to pose. Um, so let's see, in, in, uh, in Rosemary and, and Bob's presentation, there was, uh, you articulated, um, you know, that, that Sarah, you know, took as a starting point the colonial situation, and he saw, you know, there two likely outcomes for the indigenous population given that this project is, is going on. And so he, like, it, it seems like from his point of view, looking at the situation, he, he was able to read what the needs of the people were, how he understood it, and then come up with, uh, and it is not as if he, he came up with it on his own, but, but he, he saw a path for pursuing you know, what James was talking about, you know, this, this apostolic life in, in this particular concrete situation. And what, what I'm curious about with what Damien was talking about is that it seems, it seems like, I mean, in addition to all of the, it's a structural issues, there was, a, it, it feels like there was a kind of crisis of um, reading the needs of the people and figuring out how to meet them. Like a, like a, so, so a kind of, you know, really, truly missionary problem. I don't, I don't know if, if and, and, I, and I was, I was struck by, um, sounds like when, when you move into the, the chaos of, this, of the, of the period that you're talking about, Damien, uh, in terms of the, the political, um, instability and, and, uh, you know, in um, revolutions and, and so on, um, that, that that was a just particularly challenging environment in which to discern, you know, what the path should be. 
Um, so, was there was there a kind of uh, I mean I don't know how to put it not really like a theoretical breakdown, but a, but a kind of breakdown in terms of um, understanding how to how to live out the apostolic life in the time period and. You know, can you comment on, on any things that you came across that, that speak, speak to that? Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of things going on. First of all, you know, I think um, Suarez del Real's story is particularly poignant, right? Um, because what they did was they adapted. They had to adapt. And he, he probably is a case of of one person who had maybe one of the most the most difficult times adapting. Um, there's a there's a great book about the life and times of Father Gonzalez Rubio, who was he was not from the College of Zacatecas, but he was a Mexican Franciscan who came. Um, and he went through the same. Uh, I mean, he attached himself to that college, and he and he he managed to get through the period. And he was very much a person who. Um, who managed to live through that period with a, a strong sense of purpose and struggled, but he was instrumental in founding that college to form uh, native-born Franciscans, you know, which would become the Santa Barbara province. He, that said, there were two issues, I think, that were, were difficult to deal with. The first was, um, Exactly, the fact that they came to be missionaries to the Indians. And so while they, even, even prior to secularization, there was always this tension because they were expecting that regular clergy would be sent eventually to, to minister to, the, to the, the Hispanic population, right? They, but they had to also perform weddings and baptisms and confirmations for the people off the mission or the settlers. And so there was always that tension because they, they always felt like, well, we're supposed to be missionaries. We're not here to be, like he said, curates. But they had to be. And then, um, then when you have an actual diocese um, formed for both Baja and Alta California with a bishop as opposed to, you know, a delegate of the bishop who was in Guadalajara, then, once again, who's going to be the clergy of this diocese? Well, they sent... Um, two or three young priests from Mexico to be the diocesan clergy. One of them died, you know, early on, and then you, you still only had a couple. So there was always this, this tension of being missionaries, but also having to, uh, in, having to minister to the local Hispanic population, who in a lot of ways um, had not really had much access to them before. Um, so, yeah, they, they went through a very difficult period, and I, like I said, my, my thesis was that there, there was a real shock on their identity, right? How do we deal with this? Also because um, in California, they are, they're not Spaniards, but they're Mexican. And Alta California was a place that had its own identity that, that even felt removed from Mexico. So um, they, weren't, they weren't native born sons of the land as the local settlers were either. So they also had to deal with that. Um, so there, I think that this was a period where um, they really found themselves and 
all the documentation says that they, they found themselves without a very clear strategy. And each individual had to sort of do the best he could. I think the ones like Father Gonzalez Rubio who managed to fare best were the ones who associated themselves most with the other Franciscans in Santa Barbara and uh, were able to feel uh, supported and feel the camaraderie with them. Whereas the ones like Real or, or, or his brother or, or others who were, felt more isolated were the ones who struggled the most. It's fascinating, like, uh, it's like uh, when all these, this fragmentation of identities happens, it seems like the, the solution is to live Christianity with, to go back to, you know, the group of people who want to live Christianity, and then the mission has to come out. You said having a family nucleus is a good way to, to help the settlement grow, but it also was a way to protect the the indigenous women from the, how do I say? The, yeah, I know, I was just trying to be nice. Uh, from the uh, untoward uh, behavior of, of the soldiers, but it still happened. I mean, and, and Sarah was, was very upset about that, and as we mentioned earlier, he wrote back to Mexico about this situation. But no, he was hoping to, through example, as, as you talked about, James, and everyone, through example, to show what a, a civilized Spanish family would be like. You know, teaching the Indians agriculture, but teaching them modeling the behavior of married life and uh, family, that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the things that we didn't, in, in, in the letter the, the, where Sarah describes the conversation that he had with Juan Evangelista that Rosemary um, um, read for us this morning, uh, right before then, Sarah asks one of Annalista, you know, what did your people think when we first came? You know, and, and, and Juan says, well, it was simple. We thought that, uh, that uh, you guys were the, uh, were the sons of the mules on which you were riding because there were no women. You know? And one of the things that Sarah is especially concerned about is to ensure that, that Native people understand that, that married life has an honored place within, within Christianity because, you know, the first party that came, there were no women. They're all guys, you know? So that's, that's one of the things he's very, very concerned about, uh, to make sure that, that Native people understand that families are valued in Christianity. Well, just to start from going backwards, um, most recently, you know, in California, the, as I mentioned, the Franciscans were really spread very thin. And so I don't think that um, they ultimately had uh, very much of a different approach, a theoretical approach to education than the Jesuits uh, would have had. But, you know, during the time that they were, especially in the 19th century, there were so few of them that, um, the, they wanted to get schools started, as, as Bob mentioned, but there were so few people who, who were qualified to be teachers. And so the population in California, in Alta California, hadn't had, except for a few um, elite members, right, hadn't had access to very much studies. So um, many people could read, 
but not everyone. And so you see, um, when they could recruit, for example, um, lay people who could be teachers, or if there happened to be a soldier who had some spare time, who had, who had done some studying, then, um, then they, would have, they would have them do that. But it was very difficult to, um, to find qualified people to teach, other than the basics, you know, reading and writing. And whereas the Jesuits at that time, in the 1850s, had, um, had the possibility of sending reinforcements, and in this case they were Italians mainly, to, uh, to help found the college and later the university. So um, I, I, I think that if they had the resources, they would have loved to have been more involved in education at the time, but they were just stretched. There were too few and far between. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. Last night at dinner, we were talking about this very thing. Uh, Bob and I spent a month down at the Huntington Library, just uh, February and into March, doing research. And I ran across the Actas del Ayuntamiento, which are the minutes from the town council of Monterey. And um, there were actas from 1833 up until about 1843. So I'm reading through all of these, and I'm seeing that there's a theme about education, that the people of the town of Monterey wanted escuelas de primeras letras, so it would be elementary schools, to be established for their children. And it's just like once a week when the town council would meet, there was somebody there saying, we're proposing this school, we need a teacher. They even wrote up a 14-article kind of constitution that all the things that the teacher needed to do, that the teacher had to arrive at 7 in the morning and, and when they had to leave, uh, what the students would be taught. Catechism was one of the things that had to be taught. Penmanship, they wanted the children to know how to write well, and the teacher was supposed to collect the samples of penmanship every day and go over it, correct it, give it back. I mean, it's fascinating. We want to put this into an article. I mean, it's so, it's so fascinating. When you read some of those documents, you, you wish that they had learned the penmanship. Oh, I know, <laughs> honest to God. But what was fascinating was, and it's like all of us who, who teach, it all comes down to money. Uh, funding for the position and finding the right person. There was one uh, soldier at the Presidio of San Francisco. They were going to tap this fellow for the job. And uh, the first thing he's asked, it's all in the written record, he's asked, he asks, well, you know, where am I going to live? I have a family and children. And you get that when you have people coming for tenure track jobs. Where am I going to live? Well, how am I going to be paid? And they finally convinced him to come, but they first had to find a house. And they found, they found a house next to the barracks at, at the Presidio of Monterey. It was kind of ramshackle place, but they got it up to par for him. And then he was hired. But then other things happened, and it's kind of a long story. But there was uh, a woman by the name of Dolores Lopez who appears at the town council meeting one day. And she says, I want to establish a school for girls. So that it was only boys who were, who were going to be educated. Because I want to establish a school for girls. And they said, well, you know, we don't have funds, no municipal funds. She goes, I don't care. I'll ask the parents to contribute what they can. And that would be my salary. So it was fascinating to see this woman, this very brave woman, coming and saying, I want young women to be educated as well. Because it was 
kind of hit and miss in terms of the education of, of young women in, in Alta California during that period. If, uh, for example, there was a woman by the name of uh, Polinaria Lorenzana who came from Mexico City. She was part of an orphan project. Um, and she, she was educated at the orphanage where she lived in the capital. She knew how to read and write, knew the catechism, knew how to do embroidery, you know, all the, the, those kinds of things that a young woman would, would learn. And she was um, stationed, well, she was at Mission San Diego, never married, but she was kind of the glue that kept that mission together. And she taught young girls the skills, reading, writing, et cetera. So there's, there's a need, there's a, a want. Uh, and for so, for so many people, there's this stereotype that the, the people living in Alta California, the Californios, oh, they lived in the woods, they didn't know anything. They're just back, backwoods kinds of people. And it's not true. Um, they craved the education, they wanted it. And some, like Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo, very educated, man of the Enlightenment, they're not dumb people by any means. And um, the written record is proving, we have evidence that they want more. Yeah, if, if, just, to, just to, to put a coda on that, we don't know very much about the education of native peoples at the missions. I mean, overwhelmingly, it was the catechism. And overwhelmingly, it was rote memorization, um, sometimes in a language that they didn't understand too well. So we don't know how well that that took, but we do know that in the 1830s, when secularization happened, there weren't a lot of Indians, but there were a number of Indians who knew how to read and write well enough that they filed formal petitions to get land when the missions were secularized. It happened especially in more in Southern California than in Northern California. So there were at least a good number of native peoples who were well-educated at the, at, the, at the missions. And music was another form of of education. There were many, many indigenous people who became uh, mission musicians and were part of the orchestras. So that that's an educational avenue as well. And for the earlier period, I would just say that, uh, reiterate the fact that it's, it's always purpose-driven for the Franciscans, right? If you're talking about in the 16th century when they come to, uh, to Mexico City, right? They're teaching the catechism, they're teaching rote memorization, our father Hail Mary, but they're also teaching uh, about virtues and vices. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason they're doing that is so that the children whom they're teaching, right, can report back to the, the Franciscans about their parents, <laughs> about what the, uh, what the adults are doing. And so that helps them to keep tabs on the population in general. And back in Europe, right, it was also purpose-driven. If you look at um, when a particular novice would enter right into the order, uh, they would start out being taught uh, the liberal arts, okay, uh, grammar, rhetoric, logic, okay, and then uh, if they if they excelled at that, then they would be appointed to move on to uh, a general studio, uh, studium generale, right, in which they might specialize in, in theology, okay, um, but they wouldn't all earn degrees. It's something that my students kind of often struggle with. We're so degree driven here, right? They would just learn enough uh, that that they would need then to go out and teach or to go out and minister. Um, so, yes. well, One other thing, I don't mean to just cut in, but uh, we're talking earlier, all of us were talking about language and, and learning languages. And it was really smart for the missionaries to approach the youngsters, the young kids, and get them to learn, the, learn Spanish. 
because all of us who speak other languages, you know it's easier to learn a language when you're young. You're not worried about the verb conjugation. You just say it, you know, and uh, there, that fear is not, is not there. And as you say, the, the children could keep an eye on the parents, but also not only just keeping an eye on them, they could, they could be teaching their, their parents some of the language as well. So the, the children were sort of the, the intermediaries, kind of like the Celestinas, I can't. Uh, they were helping to educate their parents. They were young teachers like that. And uh, I think that was very, very wise of the missionaries. I think it was part of, it was part of the strategy. They didn't do it just on a whim. Mm -hmm. Evangelical enterprise in California, which was directed by um, by uh, male uh, Franciscans. But one of the things that Rosemary and I discovered when we wrote our book on on uh, women's autobiographies or women's testimonials in in California um, is that uh, women had humongously important roles at the missions. Um, they 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 were the ones that really did take charge of what kind of education there was. They taught, they taught the practical skills that were necessary for, for running the missions, like cooking and sewing and things like that. And they were, um, they were tremendously important. The, the lady that Rosemary mentioned, the Polinaria Lorenzana, she was actually so important at Mission San Diego that the missionaries sent her out when the boat would come to negotiate with the ship captain about prices and stuff like that, you know, which was virtually unheard of. In, uh, in California. But so there, there were very, very important roles for, for women at the missions, but you don't get those roles if you read the official reports. But also, I guess I'd just like to comment about the importance of women as um, intercessors and, and mystics in the Franciscans. Um, so Bob already mentioned, right, Maria de Jesus Agrida, right, and the important role that she had in inspiring uh, Franciscans to go into the new to the new world. When it's reported that she was able to kind of bilocate and really prepare right prepare the area for the Franciscans to come, and you can see that uh, in some of the other mystics within the Fran Franciscan tradition, right? Um, Angela Foligno, I'm thinking of particular, uh, who actually bring about a certain kind of spirituality for the Franciscans that becomes very important in general to the order. Presentation. There was a considerable amount of um, negative reaction. Uh, centered in, in Native American communities and, and, um, and, and other communities in California. Um, Father Sarah was, was, became uh, a symbol for, for colonialism, for slavery, for genocide, for a whole bunch of things that, um, that, uh, that he was, that he was uh, branded with. The, um, the educational efforts, uh, the, the person in, in, uh, in California, I think, was probably most um, uh, proactive uh, in this was Archbishop uh, Jose Horacio Gomez of Los Angeles. Uh, and, and the Archdiocese of Los Angeles had a fairly extensive educational program. Um, a couple of, of, of Franciscans um, um, wrote um, uh, curricula for, for, for schools and things like that. Uh, the California Catholic Bishops Conference has tried to focus on two things. Uh, they've tried to focus on mission museums. You know, most Californians learn about the missions um, by visiting mission museums. Every, all of the 21 missions have museums. And, and unfortunately, a good amount of those museums still bear kind of the, the residue of the Spanish revival movement 
um, of the early 20th century. Uh, so they're often presented as, as black and white, and as specifically, the native contribution to mission life tends not to be as um, emphasized in those, um, in those mission museums as possible. So the California Catholic Conference has set up a, a group that is trying to help the mission museums um, tell the native story more, more, uh, more thoroughly. And I'm on that group. And, and the other group that they set up is a group dealing with the fourth grade curriculum. In California, California state history is studied in the fourth grade. And Rosemary is on that group. I'm so on maybe. the curriculum group. And we're working right now with uh, parochial schools, starting at that level, with, with those types of schools. And hopefully, we'll be able to move that into the public schools. That's the goal. But what's really important in what Bob and his committee are doing and what I'm doing with, with the committee that I'm on is to showcase the indigenous voice. And we have indigenous representatives from the different language groups uh, on the committees because they need to speak for their people. They have to have an active voice. Uh, so that's, that's what we're doing right now. It's, it's a touchy subject. People will, will come to a presentation with one mindset, whether it's Sarah was a saint or Sarah was a sinner. And it's very challenging to try to engage folks from both sides into some kind of dialogue, some kind of conversation. Uh, when, when they're just like this, they shut down. They, they totally shut down. And we try to say when we give our presentations is that we're trying to present this man. We're not telling you if he should be a saint or not. You make up your own mind. You know, read, read the facts, read about him, read what he says about his enterprise and all of that. I'm not gonna tell you how to think. We said that when we were in Rome. I had a woman, we, there was media people all around with the microphones in your, practically your mouth, you know, asking these questions. And this one woman said, well, do you think Sarah should be a saint? I wanna know. And I said, I'm not gonna tell you. You know, I have my opinion, but I'm not gonna say. You have to figure that out yourself. I'm not here to change your mind one way or the other. And she kept it up and kept it up. I said, well, I'm really sorry. That's my answer. So then well, I was outside, and I was being interviewed by uh, Spanish-speaking media. And that same woman was standing there. And I thought, hmm, interesting. So they're asking me similar questions in Spanish. And I gave my answer in Spanish. And I, when I answered in Spanish, saying, you know, yo no puedo decidir para ustedes, ustedes tienen que leer la información, blah, 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 blah. But I looked right at her, and she knew what I was saying. And I thought, lady, if you didn't get it in English, and now you're getting it in Spanish, I'm not going to tell you how to think. That's not my job. My job is to present the information, and then you figure it out. But in my heart of hearts, I think that Sarah is probably thinking, I didn't do what I did for this. Sainthood, it's not about me. That's what I, Rosemary Beebe thinks. He's saying, it's not about me. This was an enterprise. It was a lot of people working. I didn't get into this for the, the elogio. No, I can't think in English. For all the praise and, and, and all. I did it because I wanted to work with the indigenous people. But that's my opinion. He was always buried there. He was he always buried in, in, uh, in, in Mission San Carlos, yeah, in Carmel. And, and there are pictures. He was, his body was exhumed a couple of times. Um, you know, I don't know what's left because the people have been taking bones and everything. But I mean, in the 1880s, his body was exhumed. Um, 
And at that point, you know, the California missions were, were a mess, were wrecks uh, in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s um, before, the, uh, before the mission revival movement started. But he was, he was always there. And then again in the 1930s, when the Sarah Cause uh, became, um, was just starting, his body was exhumed uh, again. Um, and um, through, all of the, through all of the restorations, he basically has, has remained in exactly the same spot, you know, on what was called in the old, in the old church, the gospel side of the altar. You know, he was, he was, he was there. And so he, he still is there, along with La Suen, the, the person that, was, um, that um, was his companion in that ambush at, or that uh, encounter with the Chumash in Santa Barbara that we began, we began our talk with. Father La Suen succeeded Father Sarah as president of the missions. And so Sarah and La Suen are there side by side. And they've always been there. And I think one of the things that the, that the canonization process you know, that started so many years ago, 72 years ago, demonstrated that he was esteemed all the way from the very beginning through um, to the present in the sense that he had, there were people who had a great deal of respect for him all the way through. And I even think, um, you guys might know this better than I, even when the, the Carmel mission, for example, was falling apart, there were still families and indigenous families who oh, were yeah. going there who who felt that that was the place that they needed to take care of to the best of their ability. So, and you see paintings or depictions of, um, you know, uh, a, a mass annually there on uh, St. Charles Borromeo's feast day with the local Indian families. So, I mean, even when it was falling apart, there were people there who knew he was there, who revered his presence there, um, but they didn't have the, they didn't have the material uh, resources to be able to renovate the church or even keep it in good condition. Well, he knew that they loved him too because they call him the Padre Viejo and there's one letter we translated he goes, oh they're always you know, calling me Padre Viejo, Padre Viejo and then he says, I guess I am old. <laughs> but it was a term of endearment. You know, they, they really loved him and when he died they just flocked to the mission and they were trying to take peace pieces of his hair and his habit, and um, they had to like, try to keep the people away, because they were just snip, snip, snip. Um, he, they loved him very much. And he, had, he had that great uh, uh, passage that he translated at the end of the book Yeah, la uh, the, one of the last things that we have in our book is Father Palou, who was who, his, Francisco Palou, who, who uh, came over with Father Sarah, wrote the biography of Father Sarah that we, we showed in our uh, presentation. He was a student of Sarah's at Mallorca, and he came over, and he, was, he founded Mission Dolores in San Francisco, and he came down from Carmel and was there when Sarah died, and has a very, very moving description of Sarah's last day that we have in, in our book. Yeah, he would be buried somewhere in the cemetery, but the you know the the the, the Native American cemeteries were not well uh, uh, marked or um, or preserved. So somewhere in the area, I mean, they, they you know at Santa Clara where we have a, uh, a mission, whenever we whenever we're doing any kind of construction, we have to have an archaeologist there, and uh, if we discover human remains, which happens quite often, uh, we have to by law bring in a Native American. 
uh, person to uh, try to identify the, uh, the remains. That happens periodically at Carmel, but we'll never know, um, uh, you know if it, where, he, where he actually was or is. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.